the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today is the last Sunday of the Christian year. It's the Feast of Christ the King. Next Sunday will be the first Sunday in Advent. We'll be starting a new Christian year. All of the themes that we have are about the, during this time of the end of one year and the beginning of another. They're about the, they're about the, they're, they're about the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ the Lord. They're about the return, or maybe let us say also, I like it, uh, the second coming, or I like the final appearing of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So this feast is a, is a relatively modern feast. It was developed in the 20th century, 1925. Pope Paul VI proclaimed a feast of Christ the King. It's very fitting because it does sum up all of the themes that we've had all throughout the Christian year. It sums up who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, what he has yet to do, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The motivation for instituting the feast was the the, the the, the coming of the great totalitarian systems. The Nazis were coming up, the Bolsheviks were coming up. There were many claims to the throne of this world. And the, the Pope wanted to say, look, there is only one king of kings, there's only one lord of lords, and unless we bow and obey to him, we will be slaves indeed. And it caught on, and it, the Anglican Communion picked it up, the Lutherans picked it up, uh, many other churches picked it up, and we, we celebrate it today. This theme of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's important to remember that the word Christ is a royal title. The Christ, the Messiah, that is the long-awaited promised King who is going to come and who is going to restore order. What does the king do? The king comes and deals with the chaos, and he restores the order. There's a word we don't like very much anymore. The word is hierarchy. It's a, it just has a, it has a Greek word root. It means literally sacred order. When the, when, the, when the real king comes, he deals with the rebellion. He deals with the lawlessness. He deals with the chaos. He deals with the disorder, and he establishes order. As we gather together here on Sunday morning in this building that is shaped according to his great victorious deed, we're already being pulled out of the chaos of the world, and we're being reordered by the King of Love into the sacred order that he has bought at the price of the cross that emerges victorious from the grave, that is shared with us in the power of the Spirit, and which the ascended Lord will return to perfect, complete, and consummate. Now, here is the problem that the king has. How is the king to deal with the rebellion? How is he to deal with the chaos? How is he to deal with the enemies of his sacred order? How is he to put all things right? Obviously, the almighty and all-powerful God could do this by a, by a fiat, by, a, by a, just a, 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 an, an act of 
overwhelming power which would just cow people. Sometimes I run into people and they say they, they, they don't believe in God, but if God would really act in some stupendously powerful way, then they would believe in him. Well, the, we hear this today, don't we? If you're really the Messiah, if you're really the Savior, do something spectacular, do something stupendous, some remarkable and unmistakable miracle. There's a problem with that, though. You don't get loyal subjects from that kind of power, exercise of power. You get slaves. You get a fearful, cowering people. You don't get love returned for love. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords does act in a stupendous, an inconceivably powerful way by a, a mighty act which reveals his all-powerful nature. And he does it by spreading out his arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that the whole world might come within the reach of his saving embrace. It is a miracle, it is a mighty deed, but it is a deed that is veiled and that is given to the eyes of faith to see. There's a, a story that is told uh, in this book by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it expresses um, the feeling of a lot of people in the world in which we live. In uh, Lewis's story, it is always winter and it's never Christmas. It's literally cold as hell. And the witch and there appears to be no hope. And so many people now have no hope. It's why the problem of drugs is such an intractable problem. It's a, it's a problem of hopelessness. I know that a lot of young people now uh, are deciding not to have children. That's a, that's a symptom of profound hopelessness. It is a uh, being overwhelmed by the feeling that there's no one in charge and that it could never be brought right and never be healed. And in the story, there's a rumor, and the rumor is that the son of the emperor beyond the seas has landed and that Aslan is on the move. And there's even a rumor that the victory has been won and people are waiting for his appearing to see whether it's true or not. I want to end today by, by having us meditate for a moment on this building and how the building works with the liturgy that we celebrate every Sunday. Already as we come together on Sunday morning, we're being brought out of the chaos of the world, out of the disorder of the world, and we're being reordered by God's eternal word of sacrificial love. Here we are sitting in this cross-shaped building being by God's sacrificial word of love. All of the, the careful ceremony of the liturgy is to express this reordering and recreating 
word of saving love. Now, there are three altars at the east of this building. Whatever the actual compass point is, churches are always laid out east and west. And over the high altar is the east. It's the direction of the rising sun, S-O-N, right, and S-U-N, both, the rising sun. It is, it is the direction of the resurrection, and it is the direction from which the Lord will come to perfect and complete and bring to consummation everything that He has made, to bring to fruition the plan of God, to restore us to the paradise for which we were made. And there are three altars, right? There's, there's the Lady Altar, which has the picture of the Madonna and the child. And it's an attractive picture, you know. If you know nothing about the Christian faith, the image of a child is an attractive, attractive. It, it, it draws you, it, it, it touches your heart. But yet, there's a mystery to that image because that little boy is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he's come to set everything right. And in the St. John Chapel, and of all the gospel writers, St. John is the gospel writer who most depicts the passion of Jesus Christ as the enthronement of a king, right? They put a purple robe on him. They put a crown upon his head. There's a sign. This is the king. And there is a man hanging on a cross. And it's an affecting image of innocent suffering. But if you don't know the secret, you don't know really that it is a depiction of a miraculous, almighty, and victorious act. The cross of Jesus Christ is many things. You cannot plumb the depth of it, but here are some things that we can say about it. It is the victory of absolute good incarnate over absolute evil. It is the victory of absolute light incarnate over darkness. It is the victory of the reordering word of God's sacrificial love over the disorder of this world. It is the victory of perfect love over hate. It is the victory of life over death. Now, a final comment about the liturgy. Some of you will remember the Left Behind series of books. Anybody rec remember those books, Left Behind? And some of you will hear your Christian, other Christian friends from other traditions talk about the rapture. And this is from the first letter of St. Paul to the Thessalonians. Jesus is coming up in the air, and this leads to, leads to a whole kind of, uh, you know, airplanes that have, don't have pilots anymore. And, what is, what is being talked about there is something that is known in the ancient world. It's something that happened in the ancient world, and it's something that is happening now with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called a parousia. Right? It's a Greek word. It means literally a, a presence, an appearing. It's, it's the royal presence and the royal appearing. Here's what happens. The city is under threat and the king goes out to meet the enemy, and the battle takes place, and the watchman stands on the rampart, and he watches for the runner to come with the news of the battle. And he can tell by the way the man runs that he's an evangelist, 
that is, that he brings good news of victory. And the evangelist comes and announces the good news of victory, and then the whole city goes out to welcome their victorious king and to usher him triumphantly back into the city so that he can take his throne. When we come here on Sunday morning, we're drawn. Jesus Christ says, if I be lifted up, I draw all men to myself. We're, we're, we're already being reformed into the cosmos of God out of the chaos of this world. This whole building speaks of God's cosmos, his, his ordering love. And we gather here, and, and God help me, the evangelist stands beneath the sign of victory and proclaims and exposits the victory of God. And then with this victory in our heart and with the forgiveness and the new life that comes from it, which we've laid hold on by faith as the absolution is pronounced and the peace is shared, and then we go, the victorious people, and we go through the gates. How do we do it? In and through the cross. We go up to the altar to receive from his hands the victorious life that he has won for us. And then we proceed him in royal procession out of the doors of this church to enthrone him in our hearts and in our hearths and to live, to borrow words from St. Augustine, in the city of man as cosmopolitans, as citizens of the city of God, living, having already tasted now of that which shall surely come, which the King of kings and Lord of lords shall accomplish. Amen.